Thanks, Carlene. That was lovely. Um, it's really nice to be here. My whole family is from this neck of the woods. Um, I have cousins in Underhill, a town called Underhill. Isn't that charming? Uh, uh, Jericho, Westford. Um, I grew up in Burlington. Many of the poems I'm going to read tonight are set r really right, right around here. Not Some of them are in Burlington. Others are really in this area where uh, my aunt and uncle, when I was growing up, were building forever, it seemed like, a house in the woods. It was never finished, and we would visit and get bit by mosquitoes and so on. That's, but I associate this town with swimming in the Lamoille River and um, just with a lot of happy memories. So it's really nice to be here. Yeah, I'm going to read. I have not read from this book very many times, um, and it's a hard book to read from. It is a book-length poem. It's a weave of two voices. Um, I feel like all of our brains as artists have uh, kind of two stations. One is a kind of generating station that kind of creates the work. And then the other, if you're, read if you're a reader or if you're a visual artist looking at uh, a work of visual art, you're, that station is the sort of responding, the responding station. My responding station is pretty well developed because I write a lot of reviews and literary criticism. So I wanted to build a structure where I could give voice to both of those sort of stations. So I needed there to be two voices, one which was the poet, who I've kind of cast in this book-length poem as sort of me, as a, a man. And then there's another voice that speaks in prose, a woman, um, who mainly comments upon the man's poems. We, they're strangers to each other. It's not clear, it's never clear in the book how, how or whether they've ever met in person, but the prose voice, the woman's voice, knows a lot about the background um, of the poems that were being shown in the book. So I have these two voices, they're woven together, I've kind of chosen a selection that represents sort of the arc of the whole book. Um, what else can I tell you? Um, the first section of the book is set, many of the poems, in a town called Stonington, Connecticut, in, at a residency, which you should all apply for. Um, the poet James Merrill, uh, who died in 1995, um, left his apartment uh, in trust, and it now is a writer's residency. It's kind of astonishing. You go there, and it's just as he left it in 1995, including little messages he left on the dry erase board. Did you do it? No. You, oh, yeah. It's, oh, well, anyway, you should all apply. It's quite amazing. But one feature of it is that it's almost like uh, Pompeii or, or uh, some environment that was just left and kind of abandoned when Merrill died. Everything is just the way he left it. And to make matters even more interesting, if you grew up, as I did, reading Merrill's poetry, his own apartment and the objects in the apartment are some of his favorite subjects. So you're in his apartment for this writing residency looking at some vase that you read about in a poem when you were 22 years old. Anyway, many of the poems at the beginning of this sequence are set in that space. Um, as we move on, uh, the poems start to be uh, more often set here. Um, so we have two voices. The only exception is the first poem. Um, the first poem is called Bloom, and it's a description of a mural that an artist friend did for us at our house. 
which is a kind of symbolic representation of our family. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to read this sequence of poems. Bloom. At sunset this October, I picked some Nippon daisies, the last flower to flower, a verb named for its noun. The weather was all indoors, a page solo plus Michelangelo enameled in cerulean, tangles of what looked like instant ramen, a heavy barge in the surf offshore, a spindly zeppelin down, the scene split by an architectural birch, crisscrossed by laser blasts. Dave added the sky one day, then blew our heads apart by denying it had ever been a sky. A spider creature was our sons. Their hair entangled meant they would never be apart, not their whole lives, wandering in a world itself, worryingly wandering, nobody knew where. Now I see a friendly bloom. Now I see a vivisectionist. These thoughts our house had had about us. He told me at sunset this October, he picked some Nippon daisies, the last flower to flower, a verb named for its noun. He said what might have been began to come around the bend again. He said the neighbor lit his house on fire, then blamed a meteor. He wrote, the neighbor has an anonymous source. They meet at evening by the sluice. They listen for the night jar's voice. They interviewed the daisies before frost. He wrote, another brief interminable, another bombshell, a burnout blamed for the fire the neighbor set. He wrote, confusion in the hive, Nature locked the door on all her darlings. It was a strange time in his country. He told me distrust reigned. He wrote, they buzzed and shivered and prayed and died and were plowed under. That fall, he'd been invited to live for a time in a famous writer's apartment among the books and objects that the writer had left behind when he died. The apartment was on the sound, on a little V of land with rocky beaches and foggy moors, high up where the steeples and cupolas were his neighbors. He described the light as it moved from room to room across an eccentric palette of colors, from flame to teal to cherry. Then the darkness took the colors away in the same sequence, flame, teal, cherry, and this happened every day. He could read about these walls in the writer's poems, or he could put the poems down and look at the walls, or run his hand up and down the walls he'd been reading about since he was young, when the writer was still alive, standing where, where now he stood. He wrote, quote, I met him once when I was in college. He was elfin, thin, kind, his mind operating almost apart from his strange body like a drone piloted by a faraway stranger. But the drone flies through time, not space. Its controller, long dead, still flies it over our heads. He wrote, quote, his body was by then a stick insect. His smile flashed news of immortality. 
He was troubled by a dream he'd had. Quote, I'm in a bright basketball gym. There are deer all around, looking docile but starving. I must stay totally still or they will startle and run. There is nowhere for them to run. There is nothing for them to eat. Deer. Half in, half out of my dream, deer wander in a bright auditorium. They are serene until they're seen. Then they bolt and scatter for cover. I am totally still on the half court line. If I move, the deer go berserk. A doe just split her head open when she rammed a cinder block wall. A fawn is pulling her fur apart and gags on mouthfuls of hide she cannot spit. I see the hunger in their stenciled ribs, the furniture inside their skin. And then I'm spared, alone in bed. I'm 46, a trespasser in my dream gym. The deer are children playing happily. I'm the invisible maypole they dance around. He patrolled the sound in his mind, counting the buoys as they bobbed in the tide. Every buoy was an age he'd been, and every age he'd been could be found among the low-lying hulls and docks, the long sidewalks leading nowhere, leading to water. Nine and thirty-one were side by side. They shared more than they had been aware of. These correspondences had been hidden under the tense and heavy cover of chronology. His life was not a line. His life was not a ladder. His life was not a long walkway leading to nowhere. Here, side by side, were 46 and 13. Sitting in a swivel chair high up above the sound, he found an old book by Jules Verne on the study shelves from the earth to the moon, and spent the long morning reading. Satellite. If you want to make it to the moon, not halfway, all the way, if you want to see the tininess of your obsessions, loyalty, etc., a speck, not halfway, all the way, if you want to see love as a perspectival trick, worthwhile, worthless, what you loved, all the way, not halfway, a triviality, then mind what name your master gave. Bobbing lifelessly beside the story, halfway, not all the way, you stand for... The blank kept getting filled in and deleted. He wrote, quote, The Jules Verne poem is about a voyage to the moon where a, where a mascot, ominously named Satellite, is found dead on board the capsule, its body dumped into space and forgotten, until the end of the tale, when poor Satellite is discovered to have loyally accompanied the capsule, bobbing up and down in space, all the way to its destination, the moon. The final line, he said, would be, quote, the neither here nor there that buoyed me. It was November when he wrote again, the first frost ruined all the daisies and spoiled a single out-of-season starlight hydrangea. He had arrived at a trio of symbols, the drone, which he associated with the imagination, the GPS, 
which stood for the inextricability of time and place, his long-standing love of unchanged places that cast him back to his childhood especially, and the buoys which bobbed independently as aspects or symptoms of the greater force, like stars that drifted amicably this way and that across the night sky. He believed in time travel as a literal fact. He had a strange and vivid dream. He was driving in the country on winding roads near his childhood home in Vermont. He struck what he believed was a deer. When he pulled over, he discovered a short bearded man with a pointed hat dead by the roadside. He knew instantly that he had struck and killed a troll, the kind of cartoon troll that dwells under bridges in storybooks. He piled the troll's body into the trunk of his car. Some miles down the road, on a dark stretch, he struck what he believed to be another deer. When he stopped his car, he discovered, dead by the side of the road, the body of the poet Robert Lowell. He loved Lowell's work and had long fantasized about meeting him. His friend Frank, a great poet, had been Lowell's protege. He put Lowell's body into the trunk of his car next to the troll. Miles down the road, he again struck a heavy object or body with his car. He stopped and discovered that he had killed a stranger. The stranger was a young man now badly disfigured by the force of the impact. He put the stranger's body in the back of his car next to Lowell and the troll. He drove through the night with the full weight of his actions weighing him down. In the dream, he was looking for a place to put the bodies which, when he awoke, he understood to be his dream's own brilliant management of time, consciousness, and guilt. For when he awoke, there were no bodies to dispose of, but he had a dream he needed to interpret. In this poem, J.M. refers to James Merrill. In the swivel chair where J.M. wrote, he wrote, in the swivel chair where J.M. wrote, I read an inscription from our mutual friend, for James, who is a great poet, love Frank. Later, he wrote to Frank, I am in Merrill's apartment for a residency and found several books of yours you'd inscribed for him years ago. That night, Frank wrote back, One more world buoyed by talent and money, gone to have what you always effortlessly found to be there, gone. He was writing an autumn journal as a bridge across time. He wanted a bridge across darkness. He wanted a string to hang his moods upon. On his daily drives, he used a GPS that could tell him up ahead where the police were or where he'd meet a broken down car, facts about the traffic, as it lurched and settled into itself. His journal was a GPS, he said. It let him see what was up ahead by measuring what was still behind, and figured the difference, and measured, and to some extent determined the path he needed to travel. He loved how, when he drove, time and space were a single entity, with the GPS locating discrete episodes, however minor, in his future. This poem is the ending of the first section of the book. And it's one of many that refers to a great song called
called Over and Over by Fleetwood Mac. It's the first song on Tusk. Over and Over. Years ago, our sons were born. We named them Iris and Daffodil. They changed, one to Euphrasie and one to Rue. To Euphrasie and Rue, they changed. On the stereo, we played over and over, over and over, while upstairs, little by little, they erased the days we'd made for them. They changed to Euphrasie and Rue. They saw the sadness on the other side of the horizon, how flowers flash and fade, remorse as daily food. Years ago, our sons were born. The stereo played over and over. They changed to Euphrasie and Rue, and now they patrol the skies. In the winter of the year, I reappeared. Letter by letter, I was remade, word for word. He said, offer me your hand, and I did. I offered it, and he took it, though he and I were words. I was his echo projecting back to him those names and events from 30 years in the past, the ambient surround of his past, now his to make meaningful and real. The boys from the quarry, their father's stock cars going round and round in a ring as though magnetized to a central point. Who changed change, die, eight ball, tarot, oracle? Who put the flux in flux? It was my go-to when the slipstream slowed to a trickle, my hangover cure, the reason reason gave the river wonder left behind. One day I'm looking around in my underwear for Paulina Poroskova. The next, I'm the leech gatherer. Last week I'm carded trying to buy copper tone. Suddenly I'm mistaken for my own pallbearer. God, who made change, made change, change. He made reason, reason, bother, bother, dust, dust. Then, lo, the mother bleeper goes and vanishes before he makes decrease, decrease, limit, limit. Paulina Poroskova and I are having a party. Bill Bixby is tangoing with Joanne Worley. We're all very small and very hungry and lonely since our friends are dead. We're aphids alone on a dianthus. How beautiful it was, how beautiful we were growing up by the lake with the west right over there and a feeling of what east had been and in between an island where we took our kayaks, tied up and slept. Past campfires, little ash smudge flowers in the sand. Ours was still visible from the pier, the balcony. I swear I was in both places, on the balcony, on the beach. Not as a matter of aesthetic expediency, I swear, but split. That was me and that was me. There were Sean and Matt and Dave and Mike and Tom, whose rat-a-tat-tat was shame, and Tom's brother of the Adonis Turbo backhand that rent in two the Mount Mansfield first doubles team. At least the island wasn't someone's sad attempt to halt time. It had that advantage over Pinhead and the Decents, whose new wave homegrown sounds were television plus The Clash minus the Sunday reggae show on RUV. A late night DJ ripped hits on air. The island viewed from the balcony 
gave a view of the balcony where I stood and watched our fire flicker out. That poem had the names of some obscure Burlington bands that I grew up listening to. The mountains around him opened in great flashing crevices and out poured men and women by the hundreds, smiling and laughing. He was a monitoring eagle, seeing life from all angles. Then he was the one seen, like a monitoring eagle glimpsed in the trees, a rare and beautiful symbol. Then again, he was the eagle's eye, hidden in the deep branches of a pine, far above, an eye that understood everything. The rock face launched from its chasms bright orange skiers. Auroras flashed, then drifted. The skiers were crepe paper. The mountain had a mouth, and it ate passing airplanes. The conscience of the Adirondacks is the sandwort, is the tundra yew. A volley of clouds whipped past the trees and over the valley where Mount Mansfield was ready with its down-the-line return. And the mountains played forever this way, volleying to and fro, fronts and storms, as though nobody ever planned a party or a long weekend. And you could make them vanish, and you could make them bashful, and the skiers ran like tears, and the clouds volleyed, were volleyed, white face to Mount Philo, to the Gothics. He was the one seen, his body aged, and all the onlookers remarked upon his aging body, the muscles in his arms slackening, his posture stooped. And the men and women turned away sadly, for this sight, this common sight, they had seen before. What happened to Hibbing, Minnesota, they asked Dylan. And Dylan replied, just time. Time is what happened to Hibbing. Imagine outlasting time, appearing on the other side of it, relieved, like, wow, what was that all about? <laughs> A dream. I had the most horrible dream, spoke the shepherd. And the last replied, no matter now, we're here now. Quiet love. And then again, he was an eagle, hidden away in the branches, but rare, a rare sight, so liable to be seen. And his eagle mind now regarded his aging body with pity, since it, and not his mind, was what people saw. And they saw it every time he scaled the pines, intending to look out as from behind a shield of invisibility. Also in the woods, a little south of there, a little north of here, his uncle and their family, subsistence hippies living in a house they were constructing, winter approaching, running out of time. And then the news was bad. The family had crumbled. The children were lost in their dark moods. They were brooding and started to move in packs of other children, also lost, all across Vermont. She steps from cloud to cloud in a snow-white cardigan. Her head is the sun. Her moon boots defy gravity. She is big with child, but a dragon stands nearby, a dragon with a landing strip that leads into his gut. Oh, rewind, keep going, more. Up, step on top and view the valley. Winooski slithering under the Richmond trestle. That's where they built their camp. I shall be released before I knew the song played over and over on an eight-track soundtrack of future freedom 
remembered long after they'd raised the camp and blitzed their family with a ray gun. He steps from peak to peak, silently embodying the song. They say everything can, etc. Every distance, etc. Since he was an eagle, he would be seen, and since he was not an eagle, what people would see was his body, slowly becoming a body he did not wish others to see. He was touchstone in As You Like It. He was Robin Starveling in Midsummer. He memorized his lines immediately, but took no interest in the plays. The actor in his class was a boy named Renzo, another boy without a father, whose father had died, hadn't he, in Vietnam whom he'd known since before he could remember, and who spoke in the tones and cadences of a very young child, even well into his adolescence. Amazingly, years later, Renzo returned as a multiple-episode champion on Jeopardy, returned in the form of a contestant on TV, returned as compensation for the drained and wan realities he had, he had introduced after misrepresenting them to Bodhi, his college friend, too far from California to go home for the holidays. Renzo was festy, the Armageddon jester in our Catholic monotone Twelfth Night. Years later, he reappeared on Jeopardy, blown like a stray balloon by Hurricane Trebek. Bodhi came home with me my first fall away. I told him we were plutocrats and lived the way a lifeguard lives in the ether, cousins to the horizon. Since it was Friday, it was Pollock. He came from a gala orchard near Eureka. Vermont was more upholstered than I'd said. I thought, please God, a shout out from Renzo. When the Pollock appeared, he shoveled it down. He was his Kyoto to my Winooski, hippie angel greaser to my malleable morals, the still point of the changing channels. Where his mind went when he dreamed was to the deep shady blocks near City Hall Park in Burlington, the many alleys surrounding where he had drank or kissed someone, the fire escapes leading to roofs where he'd partied in the chill of January, high above the otherwise squat city, his, a shop on the corner of Bank and Cherry Streets that sold all manner of occult artifacts, haunted dice, weird psychedelic merchandise, decks of tarot cards, as well as massive crazy straw glass bongs and sex toys. Mariachi noodling was coming from the den, and then it was faux polka, big-assed fondant dominatrices and pastel accordions. Soon, Guy and Ralna, Ave Maria, and Auf Wiedersehen. That's the Lawrence Welk show. My grandparents used to watch it. Look it up if you don't know what it is. <laughs> I shivered in my bedroom, praying that art would someday send a ladder to the sky I could scale and become the love child of Sylvia Plath, Ozzy, and Alex DeLarge. I had Crazy Train on my Texas Instruments and Daddy, which I recited in the mirror. Those rape scenes I fast-forwarded, I'm proud to say, but I slow-mowed that William Tell menage a trois. It worked. Art works if you are otherwise fucked and try. Now look at me. 
almost Aussie, mansplaining to my 11-year-old son the photo of a Louis XIV gilt dildo he found in our cloud. Eventually, he climbed down from the tree, apologizing the entire way for the way his body was, what a bind he'd put them in, attracting their curiosity that way, an eagle in a pine tree in the coldest week in January. Here I go again in the bone jumpsuit, detail by detail, erasing my inside. Répétez, s'il vous plaît, said my memory. I did, and then it said, Danielle, répétez. Ring out the dawn, there's a drop of light with my name on it, I am thirsty for it. My mind thinks I am made of bone and tissue, and it will die too when my body shits itself. Répétez, s'il vous plaît, Danielle. Répétez. My shelf life, half life is over forever. Q&A. In, in this poem, there are two voices. Um, in this one poem, there are two voices. Over and over, over and over. By such lures and enticements is time stopped. What part or season of creation is tusk? It starts time over. New dream, repeat, new dream. As to the creation, where is its refresh button? In a star, in a stock car, on Orion, on a mountain. My heart is anguish. How can I vanish it? Oh, vanish isn't a transitive verb. The song is coming on, listen. Silence while the song plays. Silence after the song ends. Silence as the song starts up again. And this is the final section of the book. It's a short section. I'm going to read the whole thing. Um, what you just heard were selections from um, the other sections, but this is the entire section. It has a title, Euphrasian Rue. Those are the two herbs that were given to Adam in the garden by the archangel. Um, and uh, they were associated with psychedelic experience um, for a long time by hippies <laughs> in the 60s. Um, but th there's a scene in Paradise Lost where Adam's given these two herbs, Euphrasia and Rue, and his perception opens. Winter moth, I put your body on and I was happy with the armor. Flight was both possible and necessary since I was light, brittle, and miniature. Flight was both happy and panicky now that I was inside your body, my awareness stretching far beyond my wingspan and erratic decision pattern. I was now entirely like myself. Now I was myself both inside and out, and I settled into the new temporality of a moth's life, only a day or two in this resplendent, powdery body, then annihilation minus zero, when January in one enormous puff exhaled its ice across the landscape. Like a child getting used to a man's body, seen when he least wants to be seen, seen walking in when he would like to be conveyed invisibly to his seat in math. Or like the melody hastening itself away in honey high, the sweetness ticking its own lifespan away, jittery, alert, despite my blue peacoat, Hold your hand up to the screen. Hold your hand up to the page. Cover this stanza up just so. Cover these lines up with your hands. 
Just so I held, a, I held my hand a minute ago to block what I was writing and possibly to mirror the reader's hand as it mimicked mine. Or will, if you hold your hand up to the screen or to the page. But this was years ago. This moment unfolding was years ago. My awareness seems to extend this day past the trap set by my body, past the small adjustments of head with wings and antennae. What does it matter, the head and wings and antennae, if my awareness extends to the top of the pine with its spiny flowers still green and down to the roots which grip the soil and feed on its decay? You, your hand and mind and mine at the same angle, you there in the future fleeing me. If the reader will now turn over her hands to expose her palms, I will also do so, and together we shall contemplate enormity. He wrote to me again. He wrote to me again in a dream. A mild winter, a false start for the daffodils and for the fragrant hyacinths, whose green was suicidal in the beds and near the hedges and for the snowdrops whose dainty necks bend under the weight of the flower, doomed by their name to misunderstand their nature, bowed, ruined in one frigid day. Why do they talk this way? I asked him. The flowers, he replied. The poets, I replied. He wrote to me, he wrote to me again in a dream. Koyanasquatsi style, all life was time-lapsed into pattern. He emerged from the pattern, but was not entirely human. He was more like a string of Christmas lights around a human body. In this form, more pattern than human, he approached me. And then I saw beside him another pattern. He was walking a little dog, a small constellation of lights tracing the shape of a little low-to-the-ground comical dog, a dachshund or a corgi. You could see just from the ways the constellations of their bodies interplayed, they loved each other, the outline of a dog and the outline of a man. They were one being moving across the field toward me. Why do they talk this way, I asked. The poets, he replied. The flowers, I replied. They speak a language we can understand, Quote, of woe and worry and ruined beauty. That's why they speak this way. You'd have a poem rhyme, rhizome. The poets, you mean? The flowers, I mean. If the reader will now step away from the screen, if the reader will now step away from the page, together we can ponder who imagined whom, and downstairs start a new pot of coffee. He wanted to meet me, but our element was time. He approached me where I was standing years later, and I approached him where he stood, but he was too far in the past. We shared the illusion of approach as on a treadmill. He walked towards me on his treadmill, and I walked towards him on mine. Soon we were sprinting towards each other faster, but no closer, trapped in the eternal loop of the machine. His poor dog. Its little legs were not meant for such a strain. He was cross with him. He was exhausted and cross with his owner. 
past the midpoint of the single day, but my body was what I wanted it to be. Mr. Chrysalis, your formality disgusts me, you with your empty promises and goo. I suspect you're thinking of your sons, I said. You suspect correctly. What aspect of their lives most worries you? That I can see inside them. Why does it worry you to see inside them? Because I see myself inside them. What makes you sure it's you? Dramatic pause, uncomf uncomfortably prolonged. In the background, a twin engine plane appears. I have an ID tag on. I check theirs against mine. The numbers match, so we are the same person. The plane lurches suddenly, then drops. There's an enormous explosion, then a plume of smoke. In his sweet rebellion, I see my own. In his trying on for the sake of trying on, the highway leading only to other highways, the GPS already certain where we're headed, since all its prophecies are memories. What is this, oh, what is this new thing, said I to my body, said he to his body. What side effect of passing time? But our bodies were speechless in unison. We sat in the international house of speechlessness. Our bodies cried out speechlessly. Their essence was mystery and iffy intent. This is the last poem. I'll tell you, because I don't think it's possible for you to know otherwise, it's, we're back in Merrill's apartment. On the deck upstairs, I read about the deck upstairs. In the daybed, I read about the daybed. In the books, I read about the books I read. High up all night, I thought of my sons, how when they wake, I will be finishing this poem, my, my night, your day, from here on out. Birds, check. First light, sunrise, this pole vaulting got me down. My outlines splayed in the guest bed, swift captive, tied up, bordello bait. The sponsors, the bats, the bottles, the sponsors, the milk glass, the Santorini guide from 1982, the tin mini license plate that read Jim. In a book on one of the shelves, I left a copy of this poem changed slightly since that night, changed crucially yet slightly since the night I lay on the star deck and made my body an angel in the warm September night above the sound with its bright buoys, the way I did when I was a small child in a snowbank in my zippered snowsuit. You can find this poem inside a book on the shelves with the libretti and the Santorini guide. Though when you find it, you will see the poem changed slightly, crucially, because you know why, because time. Thank you. That was a lot. Um. <laughs>